Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, we are continuing uh, our series as they kind of move back there, um, our series of Advent, or the season each year as a church family, we kind of pause our normal sermon series uh, and think about these different themes that uh, traditionally the church has celebrated as we look expectingly to the coming, Christ, the coming of Christ and to celebrate that uh, at Christmas. And so each year we look at these four themes. Trent started uh, two weeks ago with the theme of hope, that we find true hope uh, not in ourselves, not in circumstances, but we find them in the character of our God. Um, and that's where true hope can be established. And then last week we continued in uh, with the theme of peace. And Trent's point was that we have a king, we can have peace in our lives because we know we have a king, uh, and it's not Herod. We have the king of heaven that we worship. And this week, uh, our third theme comes up, our theme of joy. Uh, and we write, light the pink candle. Uh, you've heard us say this before if you've done Advent with us in past years, but we always say it because it's always a question for some. Why a pink candle? And the truth is, no one really remembers anymore. Which is fitting because we always have those holiday traditions where no one knows who started it, when it started, really why we do it. But we're going to do it and better not ask about it or, you know, we're going to have a problem. And so you can look up online. There's a couple of explanations that may be... Maybe true. Uh, if you want to pick one, your favorite one, run with it. That's great. No one will tell you you're wrong. Um, but we want to talk about joy. Um, and we're going to do that. We're going to attack this this morning through Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open up uh, to that passage. Uh, if you do not have a Bible but would like one, there are a few at the side of the tech booth back there. Um, feel free to go, get back and grab that. Uh, take that with you if you'd like it. I'd uh, love for you to have that just as a small gift uh, from us to you, if it'd be helpful. Um, you can also find a, follow along, and if you're a user of the Bible app, uh, we have a live event there, um, which has the, kind of the outline and some verses, and that may be helpful to you. Um, and so we're going to jump in here in verse 1, um, and just warning before we get going, so you kind of know what to expect. This is a big block of text. But I believe in us, I have faith in you, or some of you, and so I think we'll be able to make it through. And so if you're there... Um, Follow along with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers in the time of the deportation to Babylon. Almost there. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud was the father of Zeliakim, and Zeliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathan, and Matthew the father of Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ." 
Yes, I did rehearse that a lot louder this week. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, but no, I, I know what you're probably all thinking after we read this list of names. We're thinking, okay, I get it, joy. Like, do we even need to continue the sermon? It's pretty clear that's what he's talking about. So let's save some time, get out of here, get a head start on Christmas shopping because you only got two weeks left, right? No, it's probably not where you went originally when we read through this. And to be honest, it wasn't where uh, originally I kind of read through this. It wasn't where my mind first went. But as I reflected this week on what passage to bring it before you to talk about joy, I kind of kept centering on this one because I think that actually is exactly what Matthew is after here, what he wants his readers to see. So think about it like this. So Matthew is a master storyteller, or at least he's a master of telling this story. All the gospel writers are. They are men that walk with Jesus. Uh, They see him. They see his miracles. They see his teaching. They see how he interacts with people. Matthew was there for all of this, and then he sees Jesus die and rise and come back from the grave. And then he devotes the rest of his life to telling the story of Jesus and to calling people to put their faith in him. But the first, thing he didn't, the first thing he did wasn't write down the gospel. He spends years at first actually telling the story verbally to anyone who would listen. We don't know exactly when Matthew was written uh, in this form when he sat down to pen his gospel. Uh, but people that kind of look at these things and study and try and date them say it was probably somewhere in the 60s to 70s of uh, A.D. of the first century. So what we see in Matthew's life is that he spends 30 to 40 years telling the story of Jesus. And so when it comes time to sit down and the Spirit says, hey, write these things down so they can be um, transmitted to my people, this isn't the middle school science fair project that he wakes up the morning of and is like, oh no, I didn't think about that at all until just this moment. Like, this is something that he's been thinking about and doing and devoting his life to. And so he doesn't waste a syllable. It's not just like he's like, I don't know where to start, so I'm going to start with this long list of names. No, he intentionally wants us to see something in this list. And I think what he's after is in this list, he says, this, there's joy found in this story. What do I mean by that? Uh, one of the Proverbs that you may know from the book of Proverbs is Proverbs thirteen twelve. That's a pretty well-known one. Uh, it says, um, hope deferred makes the heart, what, do you remember the word? Sick or grow sick. It makes the heart sick. And we know this, we've experienced this in life. We may have a big Christmas plan, big holiday plans, they don't quite come together, um, may have a big family vacation that we're really looking forward to. We think we're going to make some great memories, uh, but then we get there and people get sick or people are fighting the whole time. Uh, maybe we have a promotion or a job opportunity. We're like, man, I think that's really going to be the next step in my career. I think I'm in line for that, but then they go with another candidate. We all have these things that we put a lot of hope and expectation on, and we know when those things don't come about, then we just are left with that sinking, sick feeling in our pit. It's hope deferred. But there's another line to that proverb. Their second line uh, is really the inverse parallel. It says, um, sorry, I lost my place right there. Uh, But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. A desire that is fulfilled is a source of joy, a tree of life. It brings forth joy. And what is Matthew telling us here in the first uh, chapter, the first half of the chapter of his story of Jesus' life? This is long, at, list, at first looks like a, just a long list of names, but in reality, it's the record of God's faithfulness and fulfilling his promise to his people. The first thing he wants us to see when he st- sits down to tell us who Jesus is, is that in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of our longing for a savior. That so long after the promise to Abraham and the promise to David and the promise to the people of Israel, uh, all of those promises have found their fulfillment at long last. This is what we've been waiting for. 
Frank led a, a hymn a couple of weeks ago that I love, and I've just been kind of in repeat in the back of my mind all week um, as I've thought about this. It's called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And this is the first verse of it. It says, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. This long-expected Jesus, this hymn says, is the longing, the joy of every longing heart has now come in this baby born in a manger. It's come in the most unexpected way, but because he's come, we can have joy, that joy is available to us. So kind of the game plan for today is we're going to look at three different ways. I think Matthew indicates this to us, that he points out where to find joy, uh, but then also three things that if we're not careful can rob us of that joy that God wants us to have, the ways that it can be stolen from us. And the first thing that Matthew indicates, I think Matthew tells us in his genealogy, is that God works for our joy despite our past. See, Early in these verses, in the first couple of verses, we'll find something a little unusual that Matthew does. He includes the name of four, the names of four women in the first few generations. And this is not unheard of with old genealogies, but it is unusual. And any time that an author uh, does something that kind of goes against the trend, uh, Buck's condition, uh, convention, in a way, that should raise, our, raise the question, well, why, why did he choose to do that? Because he chose intentionally to go this way. He wants us to see something. What's he want us to see? Well, who are these four women? The first one he mentions uh, there is a woman named Tamar. Um, you may or may not know her story. If you want to, you can read it in Genesis 38. Um, it's a mess. Uh, I'm going to summarize it in a PG way if I can. Tamar starts off as Judah's daughter-in-law, which is kind of from the beginning. You go, what? Okay. Um, her husband dies. Judah's son dies. Well, in this day and age, if you invited a woman in, if a woman married into your family, um, you had a responsibility. If she became a widow and if she didn't have kids of her own from that marriage, uh, it was your family's responsibility to make sure she was provided for. There's no social security survivors. Uh, there's no social safety net. There's no life insurance. Uh, if you are widowless or if you're a uh, widow that is childless, you have very, very poor prospects for even being able to provide for your basic needs. So it's expected that the family would take certain steps to make sure that you would be okay. Well, in the story, uh, Judah, Judah, her father-in-law, former father-in-law, um, ignores this responsibility that he has. He actually kind of casts her to the side and says, we'll get this taken care of at a later time. But you can tell the way the story is written, he has no intention of doing this. He's sending her away to just figure it out on her own. And as the story goes, she does take matters in her own hands. Uh, she actually disguises herself, goes out and seduces Judah, and through that ends up with these twins. Now, a couple of things on that story. One, as we read stuff like that in the Old Testament, it's important to recognize the difference between a descriptive text and a prescriptive text. Uh, a prescriptive text is go and do this. You know, think about the Ten Commandments. Do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal. Go and live this way. A descriptive text is not telling us, go and do likewise. It's just telling us, this is what happened. And a lot of what we read in Old Testament narrative is descriptive. We're a long way away culturally. We're a long way away time-wise. Uh, we're a long way away socially. It was a very different world. And so some of the times the Bible just tells us what is going on without um, remarking that we should do that uh, thing. Uh, one way that Trent kind of summarized this in the past in here, he says that just because the Bible reports it does not mean that the Bible condones it. And this is one of those stories. It's just saying, hey, this was the situation and this is what happened. 
we see here, the other thing to note of this is this family has a lot of baggage. Like the holidays would have been awkward. You know? Um, that's the story of Tamar. And she has these two boys from it. Then we see Rahab. This is the second name. Who's Rahab? Rahab is a Canaanite woman. She actually in, lives in Jericho. That when Joshua, if you remember the story, as the people of God are going into the promised land to take possession, Jericho is kind of the next place that they need to come across. And so Joshua sends some spies uh, that the leaders of Jericho find out about, try to hunt them down to kill them. And Rahab hides them. Rahab helps them get away uh, and then says, hey, she tells them, I know, because I've heard of what your God did for you in the wilderness. I know that you're going to take this place over. And that's who your God is. And so please remember me when that happens. And because of that, she saves, because of her act of faith, she saves herself and her family. The other thing we know about Rahab is the Bible describes what she did for a living. She was a prostitute. She had moral issues here. We have Ruth, a Moabite uh, woman that marries a son of one of the people of Israel. He dies. Uh, her father-in-law dies, so she's left with, as a widow with a uh, mother-in-law widowed. But she chooses to go with her to uh, move back to the, amongst the people of Israel. Uh, she has this kind of famous declaration. She says, talking to her mother-in-law, hey, where you go, I will go. Where your, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth's a Moabite. Scripture says because of some stuff that happened early on between the Moabites and the people of Israel, that the Moabite could not enter the congregation of Israel to the 10th generation. Yet here we find her name listed amongst the ancestors of Jesus. And finally, we have Bathsheba listed here as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which again, if you know the story, this is a, the person of uh, the event of David's greatest failure that he's where he shouldn't be, the greatest king in the Old Testament, where he's not supposed to be. He looks, he sees Bathsheba, he covets her, he takes her, and through that, she ends up with a child. And to cover that up, he ends up having Uriah killed. These are the people that we find in the lineage of the Savior. This is not, if you're saying, this is the hope of the world, this is the great king of the universe, this is not a great track record of family history. These are scandalous people. They have scandalous pasts. And not only do they have scandalous past, they're social outcasts. We see there, we see Tamar, um, a Canaanite, Rahab, a Canaanite, Ruth, uh, a Moabite, Bathsheba, we don't know exactly for sure because it doesn't say, but she's married to Uriah the Hittite. So it goes to the, uh, or it makes sense that she is also a Hittite. These are not the people that you would, again, expect. They didn't come from the lineage of the people that had received the great promise. They're outsiders. They're people that aren't supposed to be a part of the congregation for 10 generations. And yet God works in their lives to bring about his great work of redemption for the entire world. They have messy paths, pasts. They're social outsiders. But God still chooses to use them in an unexpected and incredible way in his story. And one thing I know that would be true about today and where you are is that no one walked into here that doesn't have a story. You walked in and everyone that's sitting on your right and on your left has a story, has a past. The person sitting in your chair has a past. And there's a danger that we lose sight of our joy, that our joy can be robbed from us when we focus on that past and we, that brings about shame in our life. Shame steals joy. So. We have shame when we focus on decisions that we've made, on sins, on failures, on shortcomings. Well, I didn't come from the right background. I didn't have the right education. I didn't have the right economic uh, bring. I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. But what we see here is that God uses people 
no matter their past story, that God can still bring about amazing things in their life. And something that's even better is that he doesn't just use people despite their past, despite sins even. He often uses those events in the greatest way imaginable. Look, Judah had another son, but it's the sons from the scandal, or one of the sons from the scandal, that's in the line of Jesus. David had other sons, but it's his son that came from the affair, that came from the murder that God grafts in and uses to bring about his plan. And the great thing then is it means that none of us in here can't, are outside of being used by God in an incredible way. We come in despite whatever has gone on in our past, whatever we think about ourselves, and we don't have to focus on that anymore. Instead, we're called to remember the grace that God shows us and how he uses a bunch of people with stuff we'd rather people not know about, a bunch of people with things that we wish were different about us. But God uses us in spite of that and often because of that. And through that, we have joy because we look at things that used to be a gravestone of shame, and now we look at them as a signpost of redeeming grace in our lives. No one we've ever met has outsinned the grace of God. If God could use Tamar, if God could use Rahab, if God can use Bathsheba, he can absolutely use us. And Matthew reminds us of that so that we might find joy. So then we continue to follow Matthew's retelling of the history of Jesus. Uh, and it shifts in verse 6 uh, from following just individuals to following kings. We see that in, uh, I think it is verse 6. He says, David the king. And so everyone that follows after him in this next section were the rulers of the people of Israel. And what this means is it shifts from just their actions affecting kind of their inner circle and their people to their actions affect everyone that lives there and even in surrounding nations. And this part of the story reminds us that God can work and bring joy despite circumstances that are outside of our control. Because the actions and the character of these kings have an immense impact on everyone just trying to live out their normal life in ancient Israel. And what we find about the kings is a very mixed bag, if you know the Old Testament. You have David, the kind of the hero king, uh, but as we already talked about, also a pretty spectacular mess up in his background. His son Solomon starts off well, but gives into pride and some other sins and ends up being kind of a mess. And then his son Rehoboam takes over and immediately loses 10 out of the 12 tribes. They break off from him and go be another kingdom altogether. And the sad thing is, like, that's not even the low light of these kings. You start to go through them. In the Old Testament, kings had specific direction on how to rule over the people, on how they were supposed to reign. And a lot of them just completely ignore everything that God gave them and said, this is how it, what it looks like to be a ruler of my people. Uh, one specific command given to kings was that you should not go and make uh, alliances with the other nations around you. You need to trust that I will be your God and I will protect you and I will provide that. But over and over again, we can guess what happens in Scripture. The kings start looking around and saying, hey, I need some backup here. And they go and try and make friends with Babylon, to make friends with Egypt, to make friends with Assyria. These are not the good nations of the Bible. And what's more is they typically go to do this in order to carry on a war against the other tribes. So they're going to the enemies of God saying, hey, can you come help me as I fight against those that should be within the nation, within the people of God. Even to go as far as what Ahaz did, who's down there um, in a few verses, Ahaz is one of the kings of Israel that goes in, he's trying to buddy up to Assyria, and he says, I need to kind of sweeten the pot a little bit. So he goes into the temple, he takes out all the gold and all the treasures that were 
dedicated to God, and he sends them to the king of Assyria in order to get him to come over. And then he goes to Assyria, kind of continue to build this relationship, goes into their temple and wants to impress his friend. Uh, and so he looks at the, the altar of the temple in Assyria to a foreign uh, idolatrous god, and he sends back word, says, hey, we should make this uh, altar in our temple. You know, say, like, hey, yeah, we're, we're this, on the same team here, guy. Um, you know, again, doing exactly what God had said not to do, and this brings effects and consequences to everyone that lives in Israel. Now, they're not all bad. His son, Hezekiah, is one of the great reformer kings of the Old Testament. Uh, he actually comes in and says, what my dad did was wrong, and tries to set some of it right. Um, he has some high points, he has some low points, but overall, he's kind of tried to do good by his people and good by the Lord. But then he dies, and he's replaced by his son, Manasseh, who's worse than Ahaz was. Manasseh does all the same stuff that Ahaz does, but he goes as far as participating in child sacrifice of one of his own kids to curry favor with a foreign god because his heart was so turned away from what God had called him to do. And you can go down this whole list and look at each story. It just repeats over and over. You have bad kings that come. They bring sin. They bring suffering. Some good kings come and undo stuff, but is replaced by a bad king over and over. And the end result of this kind of passage, this section of the lineology, is that God takes his people into exile through the Babylonians. And he comes and says, hey, I've promised to do this work in my people in this particular land through them, but I'm actually going to remove you because of your sin and your unfaithfulness. It seems like in that moment that it's game over for the promises of God, that he's not going to do it. But Matthew shows us here, no, no, that happened. But God was continuing to work even through the worst circumstances we could ever have imagined. And it's no different then than it is for us now. You know, God works in our personal choices and through our personal choices um, for good and for bad for our joy, but he also does the same in the circumstances that we go through. And sometimes we go through good circumstances. That's when it's easy to find joy, when we receive unexpected blessings, when we, uh, something comes into our life, and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Can you imagine how good God is? But we lose sight so often of joy when the negative situations come, when the bad circumstances come, when it feels like things are out of control and there's nothing we can do to fix it. And what happens then, we run into danger of losing our joy, of having our joy stolen because we give way to anxiety and we gave way to fear. Because fear is powerful and it's persuasive and it's pervasive. And we focus on those things. We become afraid of the unknown and the uncontrollable. And it's a thief of our joy. And fear cannot grow side by side with joy. One blooms and the other shrivels and rots away. And we know this, we, we absolutely know this to be true in our own lives, yet so often we find it so hard to pluck up that fear because we focus on the circumstances rather than on the creator. We focus on the temporary rather than the eternal. This is why Jesus talks about it so often, his own words and in the rest of scripture. Matthew 6, uh, the famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, therefore, verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, about what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And a few verses down, he kind of summarizes. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the, for the day is its own trouble. Uh, Peter, the apostle, picks up this thought when he writes the letter of First Peter in chapter 5. He says, cast your anxieties on him. Throw them onto the Lord. 
Why? Because he cares for you. See, I've got a, a first grader. Um, Logan never worries about if the mortgage is going to get paid. Like, Logan never worries. He's never anxious about if there's food on the table. He's highly anxious about what food is on the table, but not if it'll be there. He knows that. He knows that because he trusts that mom, uh, his mom and I care for him, and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure he has what he needs. Now, I don't have the power to obviously guarantee that nothing can jeopardize that. I have limited power, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he has what he needs. And then we have an eternal father, a heavenly father, that absolutely has that power. And so when he says, I will do this, that's something we can take to the bank. We keep our eyes uh, on the eternal provider rather than emphasizing the temporary circumstance that breeds the fear in us. And that's how we receive the joy that we know that the promises that God are going to come true and that the fear can dwindle. Isaiah 41, 10, God is speaking through his prophet. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, the command here is to not fear. That's what it says, fear not. Not fear not for you'll figure it out. Fear not for it's not as bad as it seems. Fear not because it'll be over soon. Fear not for I am with you. There's only two commands in here in this verse. It says fear not and be not dismayed. And everything else in that is about what God is going to do. For I am with you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Fear comes when we reflect too much and we trust, put our trust in ourselves and our limited ability. Joy comes when we look to God and say, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust that you are going to work this out. And we need to this in all areas of our lives, in all circumstances, we should see this and hear the command to fear not. But what I want to make a, just a brief mention of, um, because we're kind of coming up on this, I don't know um, if this is on your radar yet, but we roll out of the holiday season and we roll basically directly into that really fun thing called a presidential election cycle. Um, you know, listen, it is not my job nor anyone on, this job sta- on stage's job to tell you how to vote. It is our job to tell you how to find joy and not fear. And the reality is, no matter what you think and no matter which side of the aisle you are on, a lot of what we will hear in the coming months is meant to bring about fear. They'll say, this is the most important election that we've ever had. If this person wins or if that candidate wins, it's going to ruin so much. Be afraid of that candidate. Be afraid of that voting block. Be afraid of those policies. Be afraid. Because fear is powerful. And fear drives votes. It drives views. It drives revenue and donations. Um, And so this is what we'll hear often and over and over again. And listen, I think it's really important that faith, people of faith are stepping in to these processes that we have for our nation. But we need to step into those as people that aren't driven by fear, but are driven by hope, by peace, by love, by joy. Because we understand that no matter what happens in the coming months, God is still in control. God still reigns over this. And so we step in as those who engage not primarily as uh, people that think this is the most important thing to ever happen. We step in as those that are primarily citizens of heaven first. And so we have the opportunity to be different and to interact with these issues differently than those around us. And as people kind of look at us and go like, don't you understand, why aren't you more worked up about this? Don't you understand how important it is? We say, we understand exactly how important it is. We are focused on something that's much more important and that will last much longer than whatever happens in the way that comes. Um, 
And so one way more, as we kind of go to our third thing, one way that Matthew points us to joy is that joy comes from knowing that God keeps his promises despite our personal timelines. It's a long time in coming. It was a long time to read all the names. And each of these names represents a lifetime. Think about that. Like Abraham, we've been talking about him in the Sunday school class that I'm in um, for the past couple of weeks. Abraham receives this great promise of God. He says, him, he's childless with his wife, and God comes and says, Abraham, I'm going to make from you a great nation through your descendants. And through them, all the people of this earth will be blessed. Abraham hears that when he's 75 years old. Isaac shows up. Isaac, the first son of Abraham, uh, through the covenant, shows up at 99 years old. It took 24 years for just the first baby step in God's promise coming true. And Abraham waited on the Lord for this. We see, if you read his history, uh, it's not always an easy wait. It's not always, um, he's not content in it. There are times that God has to reaffirm the promise. You can see Abraham starting to waver a little in his faith. There are times that he goes, well, I guess I just need to figure this out on my own. It doesn't go particularly well. Um, but God, what we see is God keeps his word and God does send Isaac. And that's just the first generation. There's 14 more to get to David. 14 stories of how God is slowly working about his promise. And then 14 more in that next section that gets to the exile, where again, it looks like there's no way God will keep his promise because we go into, uh, we are deported, we lose the promised land. And then 14 more to close out this section. And that includes the time from the end of the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus, the intertestamental period. It's 400 years of silence where there's no prophet, there's no reaffirming word from God. You have over 40 generations total. It covers 1,800 years of real time. How many times in that do you think the people of God ask themselves, God, are you really still doing this? God, are, did something get disconnected? God, did you mean it? Did we misunderstand the promise? Like, are, are we completely just on a fool's errand? Are we sec- do we need to second guess and do something else? But it's in his timing that God does exactly what he promises to bring the Messiah, to save a people for himself. And to bring Jesus not just as the Messiah for a Jewish nation, to bring Jesus as the Messiah for the entire world, to redeem all of creation, to establish the son of David to be a king forever. Uh, In 2 Peter, he says it like this. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Paul picks up a similar theme in Galatians, and he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I love that phrase, the fullness of time. At exactly the right time, exactly when God intended to do it from the start, he sent Jesus. And because of that, our spiritual reality has changed. Because of that, we are no longer slaves. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And if we're adopted as sons and daughters, then we are an heir through God. This is something to be joyful of. Being transformed from a slave from outside the family to a son and a daughter, that brings joy. And it happened exactly how God intended from the start. But the thing, if we're not careful, it's really easy to have our joy stolen by impatience. Because we all want things done on our timelines, don't we? We live in an instant generation more than ever before. You know, used to, 
people actually had to like know stuff. Now we just pull out a phone and ask Siri. We don't even have to type it anymore. Um, we want instant answers. We want instant gratification. We want the things that we want, and we want them immediately. And so it's easy to give way to impatience when we so often can do that. If we want something, we just go out and buy it. It's immediate. Uh, and so when we don't experience that, impatience grows in our hearts. And impatience brings its whole other issues, doesn't it? If we become impatient, we become harsh. We're more prone to anger. We're more unforgiving. We're more prone to anxiety. We're prone to second-guessing things um, and rash decisions. Impatience steals so much joy from us. But Matthew here demonstrates, Matthew reminds us that God is working through all of this time in exactly the way he intended it to. And that all of God's promises do, in fact, come true for his people. And so if we build our lives on the promises of God, then we know that whether it's five days or five years or five decades or five generations, that God is going to work out his purposes, which bring his glory and our good and our joy. As long as it may seem in the the moment, we can trust God that God is there and that he is working and that he is about our joy. So as we walk out, kind of the thing that... um, I want us to reflect on and to remember is that this is a lot of names. It's a lot of names, but each of them had a life. Each of them had an impact. God worked in each of their stories, the ones that were complete messes and really stuck it in the ditch, the ones that were pretty good, uh, but maybe made some spectacular failures, the ones that were flat evil God works through, the ones that we don't actually know anything about other than Matthew has included them here. God worked through each of them to do the greatest thing that he set out to do, to fulfill his greatest promise to us that's available through Jesus Christ. And if God can work through them for our joy, then God absolutely wants to work through you to bring about your joy and to use you as an instrument in joy to others. And if we, for some reason, forget that, if we think that God is not going to use us, um, if we don't make ourselves available to him, then we're cutting off the fuel line of the joy that God wants to bring to us. And so that's what we need to do. We need to believe in this. We need to trust. We need to lean in and say, God, I don't know what exactly it's going to look like, but I believe you are going to use me, and I am available for whatever it looks like, and then be willing to step out in faith. Because God does this thing, does all of this for our joy. And that's something that we, as we walk out of here and step into whatever God has for us tomorrow, we will need to remind ourselves of dozens of times this week. And it's also what we need to step out of with here and proclaim to those around us that desperately need to know that there is a God that is about their joy and has achieved it through Jesus Christ, that they will put their faith and trust in him. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, what you've done through this. This is a long list of your faithfulness to your people. Um, the times that look good through it, great stories involved. There are times where things are dark and things are difficult and all seems lost. There are things that we cannot believe that you would include in this list of names and is this, uh, this work that you have done. So I pray uh, that we would know this is true then and it is true now that we would look at the things around us and say, God is about joy uh, for us. And we would step into that in this season. And that we'd find it in places and that we would share it with everyone we come into contact with. That we proclaim this baby born in a manger is the fulfillment of every longing heart. That he has come and that he is available if we just respond to him. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.